which means caring. In the first years of life, we are busy learning about and discovering our physical ego needs. After bar mitzvah or bas mitzvah, we begin to unlearn those needs, that they are not as necessary as they seem to be. Once we outgrow those needs, we are ready for marriage. We are ready to care for the other person's needs. The very needs we have learned to do without, we carefully satisfy in our spouse. When God instructs us on how to get divorced, He is demonstrating the qualities we need for a good marriage. He wants us married, and to the very person to whom we are married. Yet if you can't do it, He personally supervises the divorce. He helps us with what we need, even if it is a need He doesn't approve of. Concerning the first human beings, after God had created Adam and Eve, he told them that they should be married and that they should become one flesh. Which seems to be a strange way of describing a relationship. You want to say that they should grow together, that they should share everything, that they should be as one. You would expect to say they should become one heart, they should become one mind, they should become one soul, but to become one flesh. And although the commentaries say that that very simply means that they should have children, because that's how two become one. In the child, which is only one child, the father and the mother have both contributed to the birth of the child, and yet it's one child, so the two have become one. So here you have a case where one and one equals one. So that's so so the commentaries say that becoming one flesh means that they should that they should have children. According to Rambam, the prohibition against bestiality for a non-Jew or for all people, for the whole world, comes from the statement that they shall become one flesh. Therefore, should a man leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and they should become one flesh. We learn from that a number of commandments. A man must leave his mother, incest, his father, meaning his father's wife. Now, not allowed to marry your father's wife, even though she's not your mother. Uh, and cleave to his wife, not to somebody else's wife, so we know adultery to his wife and not to his husband, so we know homosexuality, and they should become one flesh, and that's only where there are human beings who can reproduce together, but a human being and an animal can't reproduce, and therefore bestiality is also prohibited. So that's where we get these prohibitions for all people, not just for Jews. In other words, even before the Ten Commandments, these things were already prohibited. But in spite of this, in the simple, literal meaning that, that the Torah would choose to express it in such a way and, and, and with, in, in such terms as to become one flesh, there must be a reason that the Torah doesn't just come out and say and they should have children. Obviously, when we're talking about a marriage in, in Jewish life and seen through the eyes of Torah, there is no need for the husband and wife to marry in order to become one soul. As far as their souls are concerned, they are one. And to become of, of a single mind, to become of a single heart, that also is not unique to marriage. Because two friends can also be of a single mind and of a single heart. As it says concerning all Jews, when we stood at Mount Sinai, it describes the, the, the people in a singular. And, and Rashi says it's because they were gathered there with a single purpose, like one person with one heart. So here we have a couple of million people, and they're all of one heart. They're not married to each other. What is marriage supposed to accomplish? That even in earthy things, even in physical things, in the matters of the flesh, the, the husband and wife have to become one. Obviously, it is not possible, in the most literal sense, for two bodies to become one body. That's simply not possible. 
And the reason it's not possible is not a technicality. The reason it isn't possible is because those are the laws of nature. The law of nature is that two physical things do not merge. By definition, a physical thing is, every physical creature is an isolationist. Every physical being demands its own environment, demands its own space, and cannot share it with someone else or with something else. For two things to be able to share the same space, they would have to stop being physical. They would have to give up their physical properties. And that can happen only in miracles. But normally, two physical objects cannot merge because they each defend intuitively, instinctively, uh, involuntarily, they defend their, uh, their space, their, their territorial imperative without exception, and they cannot permit their space to be shared. So to say that the, the husband and wife should become physically one flesh is obviously not literally possible except as the commentaries say, in the flesh of the child. So what we are to learn from that is that in the matters of the flesh, not the body itself, but in those concerns of the body, in that marriage means that the husband and wife are to become one. Hasidus explains it. Right in the beginning of Tanya, the Altadeba tells us that the human being, the human psyche, functions on two levels, on the godly and on the natural, the animal. The godly soul, that, that level on which the, the, the Jew functions as a godly being, is composed of a godly mind and a godly heart and godly garments, which means to understand in a godly way, to, to experience godly feelings, and to find expression for that understanding and for those feelings through godly garments, thought, speech, and deed. At the same time, we also have a complete set of, of personality traits, and characteristics that parallel the ones that are the godly, but, but in the physical. So here we have a mind that thinks in physical thought, in physical terms, in, in, in earthly terms. We have emotions that relate to and respond only to physical things. And then we have those garments that carry and, uh, and reveal and express this kind of thinking and these kinds of feelings. So that in a loose sense, we could say that there are, there is the person who functions from his soul, and there is the person functioning from his body. The body has its personality, so to speak, and the soul has its personality. Although there is more to the soul than personality, but the soul has a personality. And although there's also less to the body than its personality, there's the flesh itself, but the body also has a personality. So when we talk about earthy things, about, about the, the, the body or the flesh, we, we're not necessarily speaking about the palpable stuff that you can weigh on a scale. We're talking about the characteristics, the feelings, the emotions, and the frame of mind that is produced by a body. The fact that the brain is also a physical thing and the heart is a physical thing. Therefore, its understanding and its emotions will also be within, within the, in the, in the framework of the physical. So we have body needs and we have godly needs. The body needs, we're not talking about eating and, 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 uh, and reproducing. We're talking about the need to defend oneself against insult. That's a body need, not a soul need. The need for wrecking against insult, 
That's a body need, not a soul need. The need for recognition, to feel like you're a something and not a nothing, that's a body need, not a, not a, not a soul's need. The need to be respected and the need to be appreciated, the need to be understood, the need to be secure, all of these things are, are the needs of the body. A virtuous person, someone who has transcended in their life, in their living and in their lifestyle, has transcended the needs of the body, the demands of the body, can overlook an insult and let it be, doesn't have to defend themselves against it, doesn't necessarily need to have security, can function even if things are not so secure, doesn't necessarily have to receive respect, but is more interested and more willing to give it. So we see that these things are the condition of the body and that some people have either outgrown them or, or never had these needs in the first place. We're just born enlightened. In Torah in general, the ideal, the goal is to grow from the needs of the body towards the needs of the soul. A very simple example. The body needs to, needs to eat. God comes along and says that on the 10th day of the seventh month, you may not eat. You have to fast. The body needs to be comfortable. God comes along and says, no, not on, on that day, the 10th day of the seventh month, you can't wear shoes and, and you can't use perfumes or, or oils or, um, any of these things that make you physically comfortable. And we do. We fast and we don't wear shoes and we don't use oils and perfumes and, and we don't question it. We don't doubt it. We're not horrified by the thought that the body is being denied. So it's being denied. It doesn't have to have everything it wants. Once in a while it can fast. Set nishatan. And the same is true with almost every need that the body has. There are times and there are circumstances in which we say no, in which Torah tells us to say no, which gives us immediately the message that the needs of the body, meaning to say the physical condition, is not absolute. It seems to be. I think the word they use in the English translation to describe this, it's not Catholic. It doesn't have to be only this way. And that's, I think, the first insight that revelation or awareness of God brings to the human condition. Because until then, and without Yiddishkeit, without Torah, without revelation, the human being would be convinced, and for good reason, would be thoroughly convinced that the human condition is a prison, that the physical condition is a prison to the human being. And we would never dare to step outside of it. But because God did communicate, first to Adam and Eve, and then to Noah, and then to Avraham, and then to, to Moshe, we discovered that there is more, and that we are not imprisoned. And as a result, we could proceed. We felt free to proceed along the lines of spiritual growth. So just the very fact that a person says, if God tells me that I don't have to work on Shabbos, as a matter of fact, I mustn't work on Shabbos, that means that making a living does not depend on working on Shabbos. And if by some argument, you can convince me that it does depend on working on Shabbos, and I come to an even more radical conclusion. I don't have to make a living. Because if God says don't work on Shabbos, and that's the only way one can make a living, then what is God telling me? God is saying that it's more important to observe Shabbos than to make a living, so don't make a living. That's a shocking statement. 
and it's not a license, by the way, to uh, to not seek employment. What it means is that these assumptions that seem to be almost sacred laws that are that may not be violated, they're not. They're not so. You don't make a living. You don't make a living. There were times when not not by our choice and certainly not out of laziness people could not make a living there just was no such thing you didn't get up in the morning and go out to make a living you got up in the morning and you went out to scrounge that's what everybody did something like some of these south american countries <laughs> nobody gets up to make a living you get up to figure out who you're going to steal from and that's how people live. Making a living is not a sacred commandment. And so if it should come to a point where it's a question between keeping Shabbos or making a living, so you don't make a living. That should not be unthinkable. Not keeping Shabbos should be unthinkable. So what Torah does right in the beginning, before you even get into commentaries and into the finer print, the first thing it does is punches holes in the sacredness, in the sanctity of the physical condition. These things are not so sacred. When you take it a little bit further and you get into developing it a little bit more and you want to become a more enlightened human being, what happens is that people end up renouncing all physical involvements. Not only don't they believe that making a living is sacred they don't believe that it's correct or proper to make a living at all and so they refuse to have any physical possessions any material possessions they refuse to get married they refuse to mix with people to live in society and they find themselves a comfortable cave on a mountainside and they don't even believe in speaking and all of this is progress they're getting away from this idol that others are trapped in, that others are, are worshipping, this idol of the physical condition. Torah doesn't believe in that either. The second step, after we've admitted, realized, found out that, that, the, that the physical condition is not sacred, and that if our ego is not gratified one day, it doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, it's wrong to take it seriously. The next step after that is marriage. Marriage says, not only doesn't your ego have to be defended and protected at all costs, that's a single person's godliness. A married person's godliness takes you into a whole nother dimension. And that is, your ego doesn't have to be protected at all, but your husband's, your wife's ego has to be protected. So now, wait a minute. I've just finished growing up. It took me 20 years to grow up and find out that my ego is not sacred. So now I've seen through ego. It's not important. It's dumb. It's crazy to be hung up on ego. I've finally grown up. I'm enlightened. Now you tell me that I should take someone's ego seriously. Seems like I'm going backwards. But it's not backwards at all. It's a giant step forward. So we might put it this way. What marriage actually presents is the, the, the field, the arena, in which that which we discovered on our way to becoming a mensch now has to be practiced and turned outward towards the other person. To become one flesh would then mean having discovered your own earthy needs, the, the impulses, the demands of your animal soul. Your animal soul wants ego recognition. It wants to be respected. It wants to be appreciated. It wants to feel secure. And it wants to know that it counts, that it makes a difference. It took you 20 years to convince yourself that none of that is true. 
You don't have to be secure. You don't have to have ego gratification. You don't have to be respected and you don't have to be appreciated. That frees you. That makes you capable of doing all of those things for someone else. Not throwing them all away and living on a mountain. Not, even worse than that, running around telling everybody that their ego is stupid and that their needs are not necessary. Unless, unless you're a teacher and, and your students want to hear it. But to walk around telling people to, to, to insult people in public because they have to learn that ego is not important, that's not, that's not growth. Continued growth means having gotten bigger than your own ego, you can now take someone else's ego seriously. In the spiritual world, the godly soul knows certain things about God. Our job is to apply those principles to ourselves. That's the idea of imitating God. Just as God is merciful, we have to learn to be merciful. Just as God is, is uh, forgiving, we should learn to be forgiving and so on. So in the godly world, what the soul knows and what the soul likes, we have to apply to ourselves. We don't walk around saying, God is merciful, so you should be too. Here the lesson is, God is merciful, so I should be too. So here, the needs of the godly soul, the demands of the godly soul, I am obligated to apply them to myself. The needs of the animal soul, those needs are there not for me to apply to myself. That's childish. That's hedonistic. The needs of the animal soul are there so that I can understand what the other person is feeling and I can take care of the other person's needs. I know what ego means because I have an ego. I know what respect, the need for respect, feels like because I've, I, I have that. But the object is not to keep it and to apply it to myself. The object is that once I know what a need for respect is, therefore I know how to respect someone else. In other words, the animal soul has to be turned outwards. The godly soul has to be turned inwards. A real cultural monstrosity, as Chaim Potak puts it. A real monster among people is the person who reverses that process. The needs of the animal soul he applies to himself. The demands of the godly soul he turns outwards. And so you have a hedonistic self-righteous preacher. Because whatever godly impulses he has, he applies to you. He has a sense of right and wrong, and therefore you're the object of his criticism. When it comes to his sense of, of indulgence, he's not thinking your indulgence. He's thinking his indulgence. So he indulges himself and criticizes you, which is really a child. A human being means that we've grown to where we can put things in perspective. A godly impulse, that's your business. An animal impulse, that's for somebody else to have. I've told the story many times about this student who was staying at the home of a very famous chassid, a very wise chassid. And what happened was that the chassid was so devoted to the mitzvah of hospitality that even though this kid was only 16 or 15 and here this chassid was an old veteran of of, of a single of a single uh single-handedly taking on the russian government and standing up to them and outliving them and so on and so forth yet he 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 wouldn't allow anybody else to serve this kid in his house because in his house he was going to do the mitzvah of hospitality. So he would actually serve him breakfast. So he comes, comes to, the, to the breakfast table, and this older chassid, whom everybody admires and respects, tells him to have a little of this and a little of that. 
And and uh, after he's had that, he gives him a little of something else and says, this is fresh and this is homemade and this is delicious and this is healthy. And, this is, and he's feeding him all these things. Later in the evening, they're coming back from shul after davening. And they're walking back. This was in, in London. They're walking home. And the chassid says to him, you know, I hope you don't mind, but I've, I've got to tell you, you don't have to eat everything you see. You got to control yourself. A person can't be like an animal if there's food in front of me, has to eat it. And just because it's there on the table doesn't mean you have to eat it. He says, wait a minute. What are, you, what are you doing over here? You told me to eat it. He says, I told you, but who says you have to eat? See, he's fine. Okay, I learned my lesson. The next morning, it's the same thing again. But he has to have a little of this and have a little of that. And this is good. And this is fresh. And he means it. It's a straight face. Walking home at night, the guy says to him, uh, you know, Hasidus teaches us that you have to control your appetites. I mean, you can't just indulge everything you want to do. And just because it's kosher doesn't mean you have to eat it. So finally, after this happened a number of times, the kid said to him, what do you want from me? You're driving me crazy. Here you tell me to eat, now you tell me not to eat. What do you want? He says, what do I want? He says, I don't want anything. In the morning, it is my mitzvah to offer you hospitality. So I do. That's the mitzvah. As a host in my house, I can't sit at the kitchen table, at the, at the breakfast table, and tell you how to control your appetite. That doesn't seem right. If this is my house, you're my guest. So I feed you. That's my mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah for you to eat. So when we're walking home and I'm an older chassid and you're a kid and I have to explain to you at least something and share with you some of my, some of my learning, so I have to tell you, this is not the way a chassid behaves. But you're going to come to the house again, I'm going to give you everything because my mitzvah that serve you hospitality. So when a person is grown up, he knows that the other person's physical comfort is a mitzvah to take care of. You have to tell them that this is good and this is delicious and this is fresh and this is homemade and this is what, all these things because his physical needs, his physical interests, his physical pleasures, that for you is a mitzvah to take care of. Unless you happen to be his mashpia, unless you happen to be his teacher. If you're his teacher, then you got to sit him aside and say, listen, uh, there's, a, there's a divine principle that says that you can control yourself. So where is all of this practiced? When does all of this get put into, into effect? In marriage. And that's why, supposedly, that's why we today in the modern enlightened era don't marry at 12 or at 14 or even at 18 because we want to be married when we're ready to be married, when we're grown up, when we're a mensch. And what does that mean? It means that you take on the responsibility for the other person's animal soul when you have finally mastered your own animal soul. When you've come to realize that your ego doesn't need to be taken care of, then you're free to take care of somebody else's ego. When you realize that you don't need respect, other people need respect. So now you're ready to take care of someone else's need for respect. That you don't need so much to be appreciated. I don't mean that you don't need it, but that your need for it is not that sacred. And that's why you're ready to take care of someone else's need to be appreciated, which is why we find that a humble person is not the holy roller who doesn't know what needs are. The humble person is the person who can't take his own needs seriously, but those same needs in someone else he takes very seriously. I had an uncle, a great uncle actually, my grandfather's brother, who was a very, a very humble guy, not only because of his personality virtue, but also in his life. His life humbled him. Uh, he went through the war, of course, um, came to America. His wife had uh, gotten very ill, never had any children. Um, she died many years before he did, so he lived alone for a long time. He was a very, he was a very lonely guy, very humble guy. 
and he would come to uh, to to our house for dinners very often. He lived down the down the street. Very rarely said anything, and there really, really wasn't much to talk about. We considered him a little senile, but we were we were very young. And one day, I mean, but he's a very gentle. Very, I mean, never we never heard him raise his voice. One day, we're sitting in the in the house, and I in the kitchen at the table, and my mother was standing by the sink, and we were, I was sitting at the table, and I asked her to give me something. I asked her to give me a spoon or a, whatever it was, or a cup. And this gentle old man turned livid, and he got indignant. I mean, he was beside himself, and he said, Three words and then climbed up again. He said, Using your mother? Sending your mother on errands for you? Get me this, get me that? He, he was absolutely livid with indignation. And that was it. I never, that, was the only, that was the only conversation we ever had. But this genuine, I mean, he had, he had, he had no axe to grind. And he wasn't defending my mother's honor. It was just totally against his principles. I mean, you're a young kid. You get up and, and take it yourself. You don't send your mother on errands to get you this, that, or the other. So here's a guy who could have used a lot of help. He never asked us to come to his apartment to help him, to carry packages for him, to move furniture for him. Never anything. Because who is he that people should come and serve him? But on the other hand, somebody else? How dare you ask that person for a favor? She's a mother. She's older than you. So here's a guy who either because of personal virtue or qualities or as a result of his, the lessons life taught him, had, had, had learned to use both souls properly. He knew how to use his godly soul and he knew how to use his animal soul. He used his godly soul and directed it at himself. His animal soul, he directed at others. Other people are tired. Other people should not be bothered. Other people should not be made to run errands. He, on the other hand, before he died, he was in his 80s. And he used to attend this little shul on Kingston Avenue. And uh, about five or six years ago, there was some guy here at, at Rochester, at the clinic, Mayo Clinic, and he came up to Lubavitch House for Shabbos. I didn't know him and started talking a little bit. And he says, oh, you have, an, you have a great uncle who who's in, said, yeah. He says, that man is something else. He says, I davened with him for a year. I sat with him by the table. We davened in the same shul together for a year. He says, he was really special. I said, tell me, I, I really don't know him. He said, let me, let me give an example. An interesting little example. He lived two blocks from the shul. And he lived upstairs, my uncle. He lived on the third, second floor, third floor. So he would get up in the morning and he would come to shul with his towel and go to the mikvah. The, the mikvah was in the basement of the shul. Then he would go back to his apartment, get his towels and film, and walk back to shul. So this young guy who was telling me about my uncle, he says, I once asked your uncle, what do you have to go twice for? <laughs> you have to climb the stairs twice. When you come in the morning, bring your towels and film. You have to go back and forth twice. When you're coming to the mikvah, bring your towel and your towels and your film. And stay in Davin, then you can go home. He says, no, no, no. He says, you don't bundle up mitzvahs. Each mitzvah is separate. Mikveh is one mitzvah. Davening is another mitzvah. And there's an expression in, in Gemara that says you're not supposed to bunch up mitzvahs. You're not supposed to treat them wholesale. But, but it doesn't mean that you have to walk back and forth twice. You know, but that's how he felt about it. He said, well, I'm try, trying to cheat God out of, uh, out of a couple of steps. It's a mitzvah to go to mikvah, so you go to mikvah. When you come back from the mikvah, it's a mitzvah to go to shul. But you don't, you don't 
kill two birds with one stone when it comes to mitzvahs. Which is a personal, you know, it's not, a, it's not necessarily something that we all have to learn from and start walking back and forth twice to shul. But it, it's a kind of a sensitivity that this particular man had for, for, uh, for these mitzvahs. So when it came to extending himself, doesn't matter, climb three flights of stairs twice. If, if that's a mitzvah, then I do it. But the thought of asking someone else to climb the stairs even once, ne- unthinkable, indignant. Never mind climb the stairs, just turn around and hand me a cup. How dare you ask someone to do that? So the, the lesson or the message in the words that the man and woman should come together and they should become one flesh is really a, a moral lesson. To become one soul is not an accomplishment. All Jewish souls are one, particularly the souls of a husband and a wife are, are meant to be one, are two halves of the, of the same soul and so on. That they should become one is no great accomplishment. The big accomplishment is to be able to become one flesh. That those needs that are f- earthy needs, the, the demands of a physical human being, of the animal soul in the other person should become your need. That the other person's discomfort, even though it's only physical, becomes your discomfort. It's certainly no mitzvah to indulge every physical passion or pleasure, no matter how kosher it is. And yet, there's a famous story about a rabbi of a big Jewish community, a very learned Jewish community in Poland, who was relieved of his position. He was fired because a woman came to him to ask him a question about when she could go to the mikveh, and he got busy with something else, and he didn't get back to her until the next day. They fired him. And it's a traditional event. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, an exception. That's the attitude, that if, uh, if it was possible to permit a couple to be together physically by, by ruling on the question that was asked, and you don't rule, you've kept them apart unnecessarily, you don't deserve to be a rabbi. So now, wait a minute, what's so terrible? So they control themselves for a night. It's not such a mitzvah to indulge in every passion anyway. And it's not necessarily the case that they needed to fulfill the myths of having children. They had, they had lots of children. So what's so terrible? So they were so big deal. They were married for 40 years. What's one night? So that's what you should say about yourself. That's, the, that's a message appropriate for oneself. If I get denied what I want and what I enjoy, nishgifalach. But to do it to someone else, you don't deserve the title. And that's much greater than swearing off the physical. Nobody should be physical. It's silly. It's, 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 uh, it's corrupt. It's, uh, that's easy. And there's no virtue to that. The virtue is that what you've learned to dismiss in yourself you take very seriously in someone else. That's marriage. And that's really the only place it, it happens on a daily level. That's almost like the, the testing grounds after the theory. You've read the theory, you've heard the theory, now put it to work. After all is said and done, with marriage being the virtue that it is and the ideal that it is and the mitzvah that it is, Torah comes along and says, if you're getting divorced, this is how you do it. I was talking to a woman, a middle-aged woman, who had been divorced civilly for eight years. She had divorced him. It was her idea. She threw him out. Never had a regret. And it's been eight years. Now she begins to look into Yiddishkeit. And is becoming observant. And they tell her that she needs a get. She's fine. Because until they get a get. 
she was totally unprepared for the 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 trauma the pain the horror that she went through when when she got that get it was as if she was being divorced for the first time from a guy she didn't like from whom she had been divorced as far as she knew for eight years and yet that get did something it severed something that had not been severed all that time and that severing was traumatic so when torah says you have to get a get and this is how you do it this is how a marriage is severed it doesn't get severed any other way even after eight years 10 years 12 years why does torah tell us how to get divorced if torah believes in marriage it's an interesting anal analogy there's this uh cookie recipe one of these uh duncan hines or whatever how to make the cookie so they tell you to mix the contents of the package with an egg and listen to this it says stir it with a spoon no more than 50 times you actually count as you stir it 50 times, not more. So somebody was reading it off as they were, as they were preparing it. Somebody was reading it off and saying, stir it 50 times. And, and the, the person who was doing it was already up to 51. Made a mistake, got to 51. He said, oh, what should we do now? Toss the whole thing? It's ruined? He said, read, read the instructions again. So read it again. It doesn't say anything. It doesn't say what to do if you if you made a mistake and mixed it 51 times. And, and you're left, you don't know what to do. There's no further instructions. You see, Torah is not like that. Every chapter in Shulchan Aruch, regardless of what the law is, part of the discussion is, and if you blew it, then you do this and that. And if you forgot, then you say it here. And if you forgot a second time. So it's never like, do it this way. You didn't do it this way? Sorry, got nothing more to say to you. Is that enough said? I mean, God is talking here. And God says, don't mix meat and milk. There's no, there's no room for discussion. But the discussion goes on. If you did. What do you mean, if you did? You were just told not to. God said not to. Yeah, but what if you did? Well, then it depends on how much milk there was, how much meat there was, how hot it was. Did you do it on purpose? <laughs> if you did it on purpose, nothing helps. You did it by accident. <laughs> so, so Torah never leaves you with, with, a, with, a, with a statement, with an instruction that that does not take into account the human condition divorce is god's way of being married we're talking about what the virtue of marriage is that although you believe in something very strongly and for yourself you take it very stringently with someone else you're compassionate and lenient that's god god believes that you should be married God believes that you should be married to the person you're married to. That's what he believes. He takes it very seriously. You don't want to be. It hurts. You can't. God says, then don't. Then don't. Here's how you get divorced. Here's, here's how you get out. Not... Well, you don't want to play it my way, then you're on your own. Do what you want. No. This is his way. God wants you to be married and to stay married. But then you come to him and say, I can't. I can't. It, it feels terrible. Even if it isn't terrible, it feels terrible. I don't like it. I can't stand it. I can't take it. God said, oh, you can't? Well, and here's how you get out. Not find your way out. 
let yourself out. You know, you're on your own. I want you to be married. You don't want to be married. It's your problem. No. Torah doesn't say, you want to get divorced? You may. You may? How? You told me how to get myself into this. <laughs> Torah tells you not only that you may get out, but Torah tells you how to get out and makes it possible to get out and writes an entire volume of Talmud to help you get out when you need to get out. So that even in the laws of divorce, we see the virtues of marriage. The way God treats us by giving us divorce, giving us that mitzvah, shows us how to be married. That what you take very strict and seriously for yourself, you are very lenient and accommodating with someone else. As a matter of fact, there's a, a traditional attitude, Jewish attitude, that says that breaking an engagement is a greater tragedy than getting divorced. Maybe not emotional tragedy, but spiritual tragedy. Why? So someone once explained it. He said, if if a couple is engaged and they get the, and they break up, break off the engagement, breaking up that engagement has no virtue. There's nothing good about it. Here were two people who were very close, who were very friendly, who liked each other enough to to want to get married. That was special. Now they're saying, "Nah, forget it." There's no virtue in the forget it. Let's not be friends. Let's not get married. What's the virtue in that? All you have is a broken friendship, a broken engagement, which is, which is how it's described. But a divorce, a divorce is a mitzvah. When two Jews are getting divorced from each other, there's a set of mitzvahs that come into play, that are set, that are, that are put in, set into action, set into motion. There's the mitzvah for how the man is supposed to write the thing and how the scribe is supposed to put it together and how the rabbi is supposed to authorize it and how it's supposed to be delivered and how it's supposed to be given, how the woman has to receive it. A whole set of, it, you're involved with a divine commandment. So it's not like God says, the mitzvah is to be married. You don't want to be married, geig isn't the hate. It's not that. If you don't want to be married, there's a mitzvah. There's a mitzvah in that for you too. God gives you a mitzvah on your way out as well, which tells us another thing. Some people use the argument that marriage is a gamble. You think, you hope, you trust that you're marrying the person who is meant for you. But it's a gamble because you could marry a person who is not meant for you. So how do you know that's possible? How do you know that you could marry someone who wasn't meant for you? So their argument is very simple because even the Torah says that you need to get divorced sometimes, which means you must have made a mistake. Their argument is that the mitzvah of divorce or the instructions of divorce is the escape clause. If you marry the wrong person, you have to get out. Here's how you get out. But that's not correct. The fact that God gives us a mitzvah concerning divorce doesn't mean we marry the wrong person. Because that really isn't possible at all. The same God who gave us the commandments and tells us that mitzvah, that marriage is a mitzvah, is the same God who runs the world and makes everything happen. So the God who says, be married, it's a mitzvah, is the God who introduced you to your husband or to your wife and, and, and led you to marry him. The fact that he also says you may get divorced if you should need to is not because you may have married the wrong person. You can't marry the wrong person. Talking about having kids, 
there's there there there's this woman who who said to me once, "You have how many kids?" Whatever I remember how many how many we had at the time. Did you have how many kids? Do you know that there are many people who don't have any? As if to say, share it. <laughs> Why are you having somebody else's kids? Give them a break. Let them have, you don't have somebody else's kids. That never happens. Or as Einstein said, God doesn't play dice with the universe. And if he doesn't play dice with atoms, He's certainly not going to play dice with our hearts and with our minds and with our souls. So every marriage is what it was meant to be. So yeah, then why is there divorce? That's the whole point of God's, of God's lesson to us on how to be married. God wants this marriage. He arranged the marriage. He set it all up. He predestined it from before creation. He's pretty, he's got his mind made up about it. But you don't want? Then by all means, here's how to get out. How to get out of something that I want, that I planned, that I predestined, but you don't like it and you can't take it? Then, then let me help you out. Then end this marriage that was predestined, that, that as Tevye says, it will it will ruin some vast eternal plan, but do it because I don't I don't want you to suffer. So even in divorce, God is teaching us how to be married. All of this is a reflection of our relationship with God. Because the reason marriage exists in the first place, like everything else in the physical world, it is a reflection of something in the spiritual world. That's why this whole world is relative. Because we're only a reflection of something real, of something absolute. There is an absolute marriage that exists between Jews and, and God. And that absolute marriage, when it reflects on earth, becomes human marriage. So this condition of being very strict and very exact with oneself and yet lenient with someone else, that's how God is married to us. He has rules, he has laws, he has commandments. And yet, you didn't do it. Try again. You made a mistake. Okay, don't worry about it. You did it 10 times. Ask for forgiveness, I'll forgive you again. Next year, you're going to do it again. We'll worry about that next year. Meantime, I forgive you. Human weaknesses. Not that God is saying, okay, kosher is not so important after all. If you must, go ahead, eat what isn't kosher. No. Kosher is absolutely important. Infinitely important. But you couldn't do it. I'll forgive you. And therefore, it is only right that we respond to God in the same manner. If we do something wrong, we have to take ourselves to task. If I'm not considerate of God, I have to condemn myself for it. But if I think that God is not being considerate to me, so what does he owe me? He doesn't owe me anything. But I owe him. So I demand of myself constantly. Of God, I'm constantly patching things up for him. He really means well. It'll be well in the end. You'll see. Something good will come from it. But you don't say that about yourself. Okay, I'm stupid. But in the end, it'll be good. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. And the reason we treat God that way is because he treats us that way. He says it is a divine, eternal, cosmic commandment that you not do that. Oh, you did it again? Okay, try again tomorrow. So why you be so lenient with a cosmic div divine commandment? He's not being lenient with the commandment. He hasn't changed his mind about the commandment at all. But you were upset. You didn't really know. No one really explained it to you. Or you were angry at him. 
He understands. So we respond the same way. It boils down to everybody has their better judgment. The expression, my better judgment told me not to do it, but I did it. What is this better judgment? Some higher standard? Some knowledge of, of a better way to be? We all have that. But somehow it's reserved. It's, it's, it's in mothballs. And our daily life doesn't reflect it at all. Once in a while, there's a collision. And my better judgment comes along and says, time to quit. Stop that already. But I don't. I go ahead and do it. And then when I finally have to face the consequences of what I did, and I'm really in bad trouble, I can at least save face and make it sound a little bit better by saying, well, my better judgment had told me not to. I'm not completely stupid. So, well, that makes it worse. If your better judgment had told you not to, then why did you? At least if you didn't know. The ideal is that these higher standards, whatever we want to call them, should become everyday life. How divorced is our spiritual awareness, our sensitivity from physical affairs. What the Torah tells us right in the beginning of creation, God said to Adam and Eve, get married, but don't forget to become one flesh. Get married, of course, everybody believes in marriage. It's a very high institution, very noble. But if it remains that way, then it's not marriage, and it's not Yiddishkeit, and it's not what God created the world for. God created the world so that we can take these high, noble standards and feelings and beliefs and, and, and intuitive insights and make them part of everyday life, become one flesh, not one soul. And if we train ourselves to see our physical condition only as a reflection of a spiritual condition, then we've accomplished something. Then we're beginning to think and feel and act uniquely Jewish. Our Yiddishkeit has become our life. They're no longer two separate things. And marriage is the first place, the first uh, mitzvah with which to begin bridging the gap between the spiritual and the physical because more than most mitzvahs marriage is so obviously a reflection of a spiritual condition the marriage between two Jews is a reflection of the marriage between God and Jews very clearly you may have heard uh, we talked about the mikveh the laws of mikveh and so on that the separation between husband and wife for part of the month and then the reunion for the other part of the month has its obvious merits that everybody talks about and you read about and so on but there's also a more a more uh, intimate relationship between the cycle of separation and, and reunion of husband and wife with the inner workings of the emotional condition that exists between husband and wife. Very briefly, as Hasidus explains, a marriage between a man and a woman is, is a contradiction in terms. Man and woman are opposites. Marriage means coming together. Coming together of opposites. That's not normal. Therefore, the love between a husband and wife is not a normal kind of love that is calm and pleasant and steady and consistent like the love between 
parents and children or the love between a brother and a sister, but rather the love is by its very nature and necessarily so a stormy kind of a love, which means that it's more intense than the love between a brother and sister. But, but at the same time, it's, its intensity comes not from their closeness, but from, but from the fact that they're opposites, from the fact that they're strangers. In other words, the, the impulse of love that pulls them together, pulls them together in spite of their differences. And that intensifies the pull, that intensifies the tug. Whereas a brother and sister don't have those differences. They were born of the same flesh and, flesh and blood. And therefore their love doesn't have to pull so hard. So it's a pleasant kind of a love, but not very intense. So that emotionally speaking, we might say that a husband and wife are constantly getting married and getting divorced and getting married and getting divorced. But it happens so quickly that you can actually live a smooth lifestyle, like a film, if it moves fast enough, seems to be smooth. But really, it's just a bunch of isolated frames, movement and stop, movement and stop, movement and stop. The same is true with the emotion between husband and wife. It's, we're together, but, but how? We're one, but we're two. We're related, but no, we're strangers. And that constant back and forth intensifies the love. Halachically, this is reflected in the fact that marriage, halachically, the act of marriage, the, the wedding, the, the, uh, the moment of marriage, is legally a constantly repeating event. It's not something that happens once and then you stay married for the rest of your life. Every moment that you're not divorced, you are then getting married. So that divorce in effect means you stop the marriage from repeating. Because as long as you don't stop it, it repeats every second. You were single, you got married. You're single, you got married. Halakhically, there's a whole discussion on that. One of the sages who, who revealed this, who discovered this, who analyzed this and, and, and explained it, came to a meeting someplace where another rabbi who had read some of his writings. So the second rabbi went over to him and said, oh, mazel tov. He says, what, what, what? He says, for your marriage. He says, what do you mean? He says, according to your writings, you just got married. Because every second, it's a, it happens again. It's not that you can do it once and then it just stays. It can't stay because a, because a man and woman can't be married to each other. It's not normal. They're opposites. They're not related. They're strangers. So, well, they, they stood under a chup and they said, Amen, and they were married. Come on, what is this? Hocus pocus, you're a fish? You were strangers for 25 years. You were born on different ends of the world. What do you mean you're related? Because you said so? Say, so, okay, let's be related now. What is this, playing house? You're strangers. Not only strangers, but opposites. Say, so, yeah, well, we, we cut that out. We stopped. <laughs> what do you mean you stopped? You stopped being strangers? You're now part of the same family, but you're not. See what happens when your mother comes to visit. <laughs> Suddenly there are very there are two distinct families here. You're really strangers. But you do this thing that brings you together. Okay, how long is that going to last? A second. After that, you're, 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 you're strangers again. So, it, so you do it again, and it brings you together. And there's this constant to and fro kind of a pull and so on, even, even legally. This is also reflected in the laws of Mikvah. If you're to maintain, to, to preserve this kind of love, because if it should become a steady love, like between a brother and sister, then something is very wrong. 
emotionally, clinically, it's wrong. It's not, it's not a healthy relationship. A husband and wife are not supposed to feel like, like brother and sister. Yeah, that, that's incestuous. So it's not supposed to happen. The way that this unique kind of love, in spite of everything, is, is preserved is by creating a lifestyle that reflects those emotions and thereby supports it. Since the emotion is a separating and coming together constantly, therefore the lifestyle, the way you actually live with each other, is also a separating and a coming together, a separating and a coming together. That's a reflection of the halachic status of marriage. The status of marriage is that these are two strangers constantly pulling together in spite of their separateness. And why is that? Because marriage between a man and a woman is a reflection of marriage between, ma between man and God. And in the marriage between man and God, obviously, we can't just say, okay, we're married to God. There's an infinite distance between us. So we try, we pull towards God, but then, but then we're still human. So we pull again, but then we're still human. And that's the whole idea of a Baal Tshuva. The whole idea of Tshuva is, we want to be good, but we'll try again. And we'll keep trying again. Because in spite of the distance, we are married. In spite of our differences between God and, God and us, we are married. And that marriage has its ups and its downs, and we've been good and we've been bad, and God's been angry at us, and he's been nice to us, and he's turned his back on us, and so on and so on and so on. A very stormy marriage. But in essence, a good marriage is also stormy. Even the calmest marriage is stormy, if you look below the surface. Just like on the surface, this table seems to be very calm. But if you look below the surface, there's all sorts of all sorts of busybodies running around over here, colliding with each other and doing all sorts of weird things. And yet from all that activity, you get a very calm table, a very useful table. And the same is true in marriage. So the moral of all of it, not just marriage, but all the, all the, the, the subjects that we've talked about in all of these various series of lectures and so on and so forth, it all boils down to one thing. We have to be able, as Jews, to look with Jewish eyes. And to look with Jewish eyes means you look at a physical thing and something spiritual comes to mind. Because that's it, because that's the truth. The physical is there to remind us or to teach us or to give us an opportunity to do something about the spiritual counterpart that this physical thing represents. And when we lose sight of the spiritual part, then the physical begins to wither. Without its roots, it can't last very long. And refreshing the roots obviously refreshes the whole thing.